If you've been following along with our verse-by-verse service, we've been in the book of Jeremiah, so this text will probably be familiar. However, if you haven't, you may not be familiar with this text at all. In fact, for as great of a text as it is, in my studies I was surprised to find that it was rarely preached on by my usual archive of preachers. Outside of uh, the theologian Charles Simeon, who actually preached his first sermon um, as a young pastor on this text, I couldn't find very many other examples. However, I've been reflecting on it a good deal Um, since we went through it a few months back. Um, And before I read it, I want to just lay out the context. Jeremiah's whole job as a prophet is to come to the kingdom of Judah and warn them that they are on the cusp of their total destruction, that it is unavoidable without repentance, that there is no strength or power or wisdom or money that will deliver them from this end, and that everything is not all right like the other prophets, the false prophets, are saying. In chapter 9, he is so overwhelmed by this vision he has of the destruction of Jerusalem and the decimation of his people that he begins to get emotional. And he doesn't just share the vision, but his reaction to it. Chapter 9 is a reaction of weeping. And what's interesting is, if you read the whole chapter through, and you were to just cover up with your fingers, verses 23 and 24, which we'll read this morning, you'd never know they were gone. They're completely against the grain and the tenor of the rest of the chapter. But when you realize what's going on in the whole chapter, and you ask how these two things connect, you see that they're very closely related. What Judah had neglected, what they had forgotten, their vision, if you will, of the world wasn't this vision, and that's where all their problems sprung from. And so notice what Jeremiah says here in verse 23. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Let's pray. Father, my prayer this morning is very simple and to the point. It is that this would be our boast, that this would be our glory, that this would be what we praise, that this would be our vision. I ask, Lord, that you would recalibrate the heart of every person in this room this morning, and that by your Spirit, you would bring the truth that God proclaims about himself and about the world as it is in this text to bear on our hearts. We ask for your help in this, in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a simple passage, isn't it? Jeremiah, voicing God's word here, says there's three things that are a waste of time and one thing that is worthwhile. Now, I want to be careful here because that word to boast is one that we kind of naturally have a proclivity as human beings 
to dislike, at least in other people. It's true that we can't always see it in ourselves. We don't always notice when our chests are puffed out, when we get that nasally arrogant tone, when we want people to see ourselves. We can experience the blindness that comes with that, but we see it in other people, don't we? And we never like it. And the truth is, I think a lot of us would go, it's fine to be powerful, to be wise, to be rich, but don't boast in it. But what we need to understand this morning is this word to boast is actually a much broader word than it looks in English. In fact, if you have a different translation, it may say, let not the rich man glory in his riches. The idea of glory uh, is to hold as most valuable, most precious, most ultimate. In fact, this is the word, the generic word used throughout the Old Testament to praise. Let not the rich man praise his riches. Now do you see how you could do that without actually drawing attention to yourself at all? To boast in the way we usually think about it requires an audience. This word does not. In fact, as we will see, this word doesn't even necessarily require that you possess the thing that you boast in, that you glory in, that you praise. Now, the three that God chooses here are not surprising because they are things that we deeply and tremendously value. Specifically, they are wisdom, might, or power, and riches. Now, no doubt, there could be other items added on the list. There could be other things that we could include in this that would be just a mistake. But let's just take these three for a minute. And I want to use them to help us reflect on what it actually looks like to boast in, to praise, to glory in these things this morning. The idea here is that when you reflect on the goodness of a particular circumstance or the greatness of a particular happening that the definitive cause is one of these things. So, if it is your wisdom, the greatness, the thing that you admire, the thing that you reflect on is your wonderful ability to strategize. That you have laid out and executed a plan and lo and behold, here is the consequence. Or, it may be the thing that you feel will give you success in the future. In other words, looking forward to the unknown, you go, I have everything I need to accomplish my dreams because I am wise. I'm smart enough. Or, you may take this and you may worry about your life, fret and fear, because you're missing the essential ingredient to make everything okay. If I were smarter, if only I could find the right plan, if only I can get the right counselor, if only I lay out the right strategy, then everything will be good. All of that fits under, is subsumed under this word to boast or to praise or to glory in. The idea here is one of shining a light. Now, 
the nature of life is it's made up of all of these causes and effects. But there's so many causes that we don't actually know which ones are vital, essential, most important, central. Right? Trying to assess and analyze life is very hard. In any given situation, we ask, why did this business model succeed? And it's not going to just come down to ingenuity, but things in the broader market, accidental happenings of history, all of these things. And we have become prognosticators who try and do the math on those things and figure out the variable. And what are we looking for? We're looking for the constant. We're looking for the essential ingredient, the one thing that makes everything else work. And these three are pretty common ones. Power, wealth, wisdom. And when I'm talking this morning about, about these things, I want you to think of it in your own life, but I also want to think of it for us as a church. And I will be the first to confess to you this morning that I have found myself way too often thinking our church would be so much greater, so much better. Our church would accomplish so much more. We'd be so much more rooted. Things would be so much more fruitful if only we had more money. That's what Jeremiah is warning about this morning. That's what God is saying. No, 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 no. Don't focus on that. Don't boast in that. Now, like I've already said, you can do that when you don't have. This is as much about pride. This is what defines me, makes me better, makes me good, makes me safe, makes me secure, as it is about fear. This is what I don't have, and that puts me at risk. Ultimately, by using this word praise, one that we often use of God, Isaiah or Jeremiah warns here about idolatry, about worship. And humans are designed in such a way because we're full of needs and limits and because we are oriented in God's own design to worship, to find glory in something, that the option is not glory in God or don't glory. It's always glory in God or glory in something that is not God. Now, one of the reasons why it's important to keep this in mind and why it's good to hear God's rebuke this morning is because these things always and will finally fail. In fact, a lot of them maintain or contain an Achilles heel in their own reality. The Bible says don't trust in riches because sometimes it sprouts wings and flies away. Right? We experienced this nationally in 2008. And you found out where our nation's hope was, didn't we? Because suddenly we were in apocalyptic territory. And it wasn't just us as a nation collectively, but there were individuals who had built their entire identity on some sort of stock, ex stock exchange number, and all of it fell apart. And not all of them rebuilt. Not all of them found even enough hope to continue their lives. But it's not just that it sometimes fails. It's also that it finally fails. If God designed us for more, like we saw this morning in the catechism, than just this life, then finding your identity and your satisfaction and your center and your solutions in anything 
that will be eradicated or scrubbed out by death is probably a bad idea. The truth is, wealth, power, and wisdom has yet to and never will defeat death. In one of the Psalms, which is a reminder to the wealthy, it says, can a man redeem his soul with enough money? If you could find the address to death himself, could you just send him, uh, you know, installments to save your life? Are we really going to be smart enough to defeat the reality of death? And this is a hope not just for the cryogenics movement, right? Who thinks, well, I'm just going to freeze myself because if I hold out long enough, science will find a way. It is an orientation in our lives. But if our hope goes beyond the curtain of death, it transforms death, doesn't it? Death doesn't become an end. It doesn't become a defeat. For Christians, death has always been the midwife of eternal life but only if our praise, our boast, our glory is not in these things. Now, one of the reasons why I've been reflecting on this text this morning is because I've been, become fully acquainted in myself and in our church with both our weaknesses and the way we feel about those weaknesses. The reason why this is good news this morning is not just a good reminder for those who have wisdom or power or wealth, but it's tremendously good news for those who don't. I've talked with so many of you who experience panic attacks, who are fully acquainted with these problematic sicknesses that can't seem to be resolved who experience the tremendous limitations of living in a broken world. And you're wondering, does that relegate me to some sort of secondary life? Does that put me on the bench of Christian ministry? Does it show that there's something severely wrong with me? But the Bible is a book that is full of God working in the midst of weakness. Like Pastor Matt said this morning, your weaknesses are no surprise to God. Your panic attacks don't cause God to panic. Nor does he sit there going, seriously, I thought you'd outgrown this by now. The secret, the faithful life that God calls Christians to, which is simultaneously the good life, the abundant life that Jesus promises, is not found in your own strength and therefore not limited by your weakness. I've even talked with people today because we live in a world that overvalues intelligence. People in our very church who think there's something wrong with me because I'm just not smart enough like everybody else. And because of that, they see, again, only lesser places of Christian ministry, only lesser places of God's elect available to them. But to admit that to ourselves is to recognize we've made the mistake that Jeremiah speaks to here. And listen, I know this firsthand. And I've shared about this over and over again, and the reason is not just because it's the sole illustration I have, because to you it's probably not going to sound like a big deal. It's because it's a really big deal to me. 
On a weekly basis, I encounter the limits of my own social energy as an introvert, and it is freaking embarrassing. Regularly, as a pastor, I burn out and have to just shut myself down and hide away like I wasn't made for life as it is. Like I've only got, you know, three quarters of a battery life, like an old iPhone, when everyone else around me is still going. Where's my energizer bunny, right? When I go to movies, I'm so introverted that that big screen and the loud noise emotionally overstimulates me, and I begin to weep. Does that seem normal to you? It doesn't to me. I'm constantly thinking about the things that would be better in our church, better in your lives as individuals, better in my family's life, if only I were stronger. That's a mistake. God is not hindered by my weaknesses. God is not hindered by your weaknesses. The reason why I want this text to be our vision is both because you need to look over the victories and the defeats of 2019 and because you need to lay the priorities of 2020. And I want you to do so in a way that properly glories, that rightly boasts, that leads to praising the only thing that is praiseworthy. And notice what it says here. He says in verse 24, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. Now let's deal with a possibility here. It is totally possible to get this wrong. To boast or to glory or to praise, not the God you know, but that you're one of those who know God. We're all acquainted with this version of Christianity that sees the fact that they're a believer as some sort of badge of honor that makes them better than other people. That is not what Jeremiah is suggesting here. Again, he's sourcing the idea of what's most important in life, what's most valued, what's most treasured. And the secret treasure of the Christian life is knowing God personally. And what's really important here, because sometimes we can read this, understand and know God, and we think of some sort of esoteric, undefinable experience. As if Jeremiah says, don't worry about those things. What you need is an encounter. And we can make that mistake as Christians because we read a Bible where God shows up, don't we? Although it's important to remember that this book covers thousands of years, and even when we look at the life of Abraham, God is active in the life of Abraham. Yeah, once every 25 years he speaks to him, right? We read it quickly, and we assume that this is the daily experience of saints throughout history. That's a bad way to view it. But the idea here is not about the encounters. An encounter with God, when you look at it biblically, may be the beginning of a relationship with God. It may be the renewal of that relationship with God, but it is not the relationship itself. The relationship is cultivated in the day-to-day. It's cultivated in the absence, in the distance, the difficulty. It's cultivated in the peeling away of every other thing you thought you could trust in. One of the amazing messages of the book of Jeremiah is, yes, judgment is coming for Judah, but then God has other plans. 
He's going to use this whole thing as a purifying measure, and he wants to bring out a remnant of people who trust in God primarily because everything else they've trusted in is gone. God often does a purifying work like that in our lives. In other words, how can we best know him? Sometimes it's by knowing that there are no substitutes. Sometimes the only way we turn and trust and wait is if God gives us a limp. Think of Jacob. Jacob was a man who was not looking for God. Wasn't really on his purview. In fact, he was pretty sure even to get the things in his life that he wanted, he didn't need them. He didn't need God. He could come up with a plan to get his father's blessing. He could come up with an exchange to steal his brother's birthright. He could come up with a way to overcome another conniver like Laban. And let's be honest. On the paper, at the end of the battle between uh, Jacob and his father-in-law, Jacob wins, hands down. But as he's leaving that life and he burns the bridge behind him, he walks into a land where he's already burned a bridge. His brother hears about it, Esau, and he hears that Esau is coming to greet him on the border with 400 armed men. And he prays. And he prays one of the greatest prayers in the Bible. God, you said you would protect me and bless me. God, you've given me this whole family, so I expect you to protect it. God, help. Amen. And then as soon as the amen rolls off his lips, he goes, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to bribe the pants off my brother. And he sends droves and droves of gifts. And his strategies bring him no personal peace. So he separates his family so they're on the other side of the river. And he alone stays on the side of the river where his brother could come in the middle of the night. And just as he greatly feared, he's attacked in the middle of the night. Not by Esau or by one of his soldiers, but by God himself who is wrestling with Jacob. And here's the way, this is how deep the problems of the human heart go. We read that story and we make it a story on wrestling with God for him to answer our prayers. That is not what that story is about. That story is about God wrestling with Jacob so Jacob will let him answer his prayer. And so what happens? God touches Jacob's hip, permanently wounding him weakening him. When he stands before his brother tomorrow, he stands with a limp, and there is no running. There is no escaping. It's at this point that Jacob goes from being Jacob, the heel catcher, the used car salesman, the dealer, the conniver, to Israel, the one who is governed by God. And the idea there isn't just that he's living in submission to God, it's that he is reliant upon God for his safety and well-being. But how does God get him in that place? with a permanent wound. It's what C.S. Lewis would have called a severe mercy. When God takes a good thing to give us a better thing. Could it be that the things in your life, maybe they're on this list in their alternates, poverty, foolishness, or lack of wisdom, weakness, could it be that those are the very things God has given you so that you can have the better thing. But notice this, to know and understand me and then notice who God is, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. 
Notice what it doesn't say here. It doesn't say, for I am the Lord who has all wisdom and power and wealth. The character of God is what's on display here. Not even the ability of God. His loving kindness, his said, his loving, loyal commitment to his people. His righteousness and his justice. That's a firm enough foundation to stake a life on. That's a big enough claim to take to the bank. He focuses here on his character. And not only that, but notice what it says at the end here. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. This isn't just the things that God is. They're the things that he loves. The things that he delights in. He's not just a lover. He loves that he's a lover. He's not just righteous and just. He loves that he's righteous and just. The idea here is basically not that God is our refuge and our strength. Not just that he is our father who can meet every need. But that he is who he is. Totally and completely loving, righteous and just faithful and good that's the boast that's what we praise that's what we glory that's what we lay a finger on and we say this is the most important thing in my life Paul understood this he comes to the conclusion in Romans chapter 8 where he says for I have become convinced that nothing on this earth no soldier or army nor power or principality, things that are or things that are to come, nothing can separate us from what? From the love of God. What is he saying? He says in the biggest picture, it doesn't matter. Whatever we face, whatever we lose, the one thing we must not lose is not losable. It's not at risk. He knew what it was like to boast that his understanding and knowledge of God Now, there's another part that's implied by this. If you glory in a God like this, if you worship a God like this, innately, and this is true of all worship, you become like what you worship. And so we cannot delight ourselves in the God who delights himself in righteousness and justice and love without delighting in those things wherever we find them without engaging in those things in our own lives. But the order is important. The idea is not, do these things and God will delight in you. It is delight yourself in God and you will inevitably do these things. And that just brings us right around to the Christian message. When we call Jesus our Savior, or when Paul says it is Christ alone and the cross of Christ that we boast in, It's making a connection between the broad idea of God's character and his action in humanity in the story of redemption we find in the Gospels. The two are connected. But notice how provocative that connection is. Because Jesus doesn't come in great power, but tremendous weakness. Born a baby in a backwater town to a poor family, to the Jews of all people. 
And that weakness continues and persists in his life. In fact, his weakness is demonstrated in the fact that even though he has the power to summon legions of angels to his protection, he goes instead like a lamb to the slaughter, bears every insult, takes every striking of his brow, puts up no resistance when they pierce his hands and feet, and prays, Father, forgive them as he dies. Jesus' coming was also an abandoning of wealth. Paul says, remember that we should be generous as Christians because he who was rich became poor so that we might become rich. And the cross is also foolishness, often to us and often to the world. There's an old piece of ancient graffiti of a man being crucified on a cross with the head of a donkey. And beneath it, it says, Anaximander worships his God. That was how the world saw Christianity, as foolishness. And yet that's God's chosen foolishness that confounds the wisdom of this world. It's by design. So we look for power in the cross And in a sense, we don't find it. We look for wealth in the cross. We don't find that either. We look for wisdom in the cross, and we're confounded instead. But do we find steadfast love, justice, and righteousness? 100%. Because we find a God who is so devoted to the eradication of sin, he takes it upon his own body to give it full and utter justice. And one who is so devoted to us, who willingly takes it on our behalf so that he doesn't have to pour out that judgment on us. God's goodness is so fully displayed in the cross. The reason why we can boast in knowing God in your finances or in the difficulties you're facing in your job or in the problems of your health. The reason why we can glory and build our whole life on deepening our knowledge of God is because he's already shown the type of God he is in the cross of Jesus Christ. It might sound a little bit trite, but if this is truly who God is, the God who becomes man and dies for our sins and invites us into his family, how would you not want to know such a God? The cross mystifies our sense of worth and at the same time proves the tremendous worth of God himself. And I want you to remember again that this is very practical. Jesus says, don't store up treasures where they can be eaten by rust or stolen by thieves or eaten away by moths. He says, instead, store up your treasure in heaven for where your treasure is, there your heart will be. In other words, doing this, boasting, glorying, praising, cultivating this knowledge and understanding of God is an investment. One that takes effort and time. One that has to be on your priority list and has to be a higher priority. The question for us this year is, what will be our priority? Will it be wealth and power and wisdom? Or will will it be the inestimable, valuable knowledge of God? What will you aspire to this year? 
What will you focus on? Where will you invest your money and your time and your conversations? Jeremiah's words to Judah here are for a people whose lives are about to be turned upside down. And he's desperately trying to call them to the one thing that will set it right side up. The one thing that cannot be taken. The one thing that you can never spend too much time in. The one thing that you will never regret. Remember Mary and Martha? Why does Jesus hold up Mary as an example? One that we are to follow as disciples of Christ. Because she chose the one thing. To sit at his feet. To listen, to learn, and to love. And to worship. That's what I want for myself this year. It's what I want for each of you, and it's what I want for our church. And here's the best part. As just another refraction of the reality of who God is, it's what God wants. Not your money, or your power, or your wisdom. He just wants you. To know you. To be known by you. For you to delight in him. Because he's the only thing in the entire universe that will never let you down never disappoint you and the only thing in the entire universe that will satisfy every longing of your heart let's pray father i am thoroughly convinced you want to do a new thing in our church you want to do a new thing in each of our individual hearts, Lord. I can sense it. That we would see behind the wisdom, the wise God. The brilliant strategist, like Isaiah says. And that we wouldn't settle for your plans or your power or your provision. Because what we really want is you. At any cost. I pray, Lord, for each one who's here, even this week, that you would prove to them that an investment like this is one that will never be regretted or resented. That you would give them the first fruits of knowing you. That you would wean us from the empty calories of the things in life we think we need and we would learn the full and true sustenance and nourishment that comes with a relationship with you. Man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Prove it to be true to us even this week. And as we make our plans, and as we look down the corridors of our future, and as we establish our resolutions and our priorities, Lord, let them not reflect mistaken visions, but let us see rightly this God, the God who is one of steadfast love and righteousness and just justice, the God who delights in those things. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.